Hello and welcome to The Things That Made Me Queer, the podcast that explores queer identities through the pop culture and real life moments that shaped us. I am your host, Crystal, and this is it, the season finale of season three. Ah! (laughs) I hope you've enjoyed listening to this season as much as I have enjoyed making it. Uh, I had some fabulous guests and I think some really interesting conversations. So I hope that it expanded your queer horizons just a little bit. I know it definitely did for me. Uh, I'm hoping that I'll be back with more episodes and another season before too long, but I don't know right now. So watch this space. And for everyone who took the time this season to let me know that they were enjoying the podcast or send me a comment or some feedback, thank you so much. It really means a lot to me, and it's the reason that I make this podcast. And speaking of which, I thought maybe before we get into this final episode, I could read out some of the things that you said made you queer. Thank you to everyone who submitted. I'm just going to go through a few of them. Someone said Trinity in the Matrix, which obviously makes loads of sense, but they also said, but more recently at a lock-in at the glory, being licked on the arm and sprayed in scent by a drunk Irish lesbian. Uh, shout out to the glory and a shout out to all drunk Irish lesbians, particularly the ones who are spraying scents. Who knows from where? Uh, Minxy, the drag icon, says PS1 Lara Croft and subsequently Angelina Jolie's version. PS1 Lara Croft, is that? Are we talking triangle boobs? Is that that Lara Croft? If so, iconic. I'm just imagining her doing backflips. Civil War says WWF icon China, which absolutely makes so much sense if you've seen their drag. And uh, I guess if you haven't seen their drag, just imagine China, but eight feet tall. Uh, someone said Halle Berry in the Flintstones live action movie, which I haven't thought about in a very long time, but yes, they were super hot. And I remember seeing that and thinking, that's not for me. <laughs> uh, someone else said Hugh Jackman's butt in X-Men Days of Future Past, which uh, also makes a lot of sense. By that point, I was fully into the Hugh Jackman already, but I remember actually now that you mention it, my own Hugh Jackman sexual awakening, which was the movie Swordfish, which I'm sure is absolutely garbage. Yeah, Hugh Jackman gets a blowjob while having to crack uh, some kind of security password on a laptop and Halle Berry is watching and being villainous. And I remember the look on Hugh Jackman's face. Wow. (laughs) I haven't thought about that in a long time. Uh, And just zooming through a few more of the ones that you've all said. Uh, We had Xena, which makes a lot of sense. Robbie Williams in the Rock DJ video. I think that comes up a lot when I ask this question. We had Sailor Moon. We had George of the Jungle. Buffy, Kate McKinnon, uh, Zero Suit Samus, Annie Lennox, He-Man, Monica Selish. Wow, I think basically if they were hot and on TV when we were kids, we found a way to um, (laughs) fantasize about them. (laughs) I love that. Thank you to the people who submitted A Queer Awakening, and if I didn't read yours out, well, know that I saw it and you're still queer, baby. (laughs) And to everyone who said me, well, flattery will get you everywhere. (laughs) 
Okay, let's get into this final episode of season three. So you will have already seen, of course, my guest this week is the iconic Miss Peppermint. Uh, you will know Peppermint, of course, from season nine of RuPaul's Drag Race. She is also a Broadway star, an actress, a recording artist. She's an activist. She's been all over your TV. And uh, I have the pleasure of calling her a friend from our time together on a little show called Call Me Mother, where we both served as judges. So we have spent some intense time together uh, on studio sets, getting to know each other. And it was just such a pleasure recording this episode with her. Um, she's so funny. She's so smart. And she, one thing I love about Peppermint is that she's a bit of a diva. She knows what she wants and she knows what she's worth and she is not afraid to ask for it. And I think that's so inspiring in person. So I know you're going to love this episode and we're just going to get straight into it. Here is Miss Peppermint. Hi, Peppermint. Hey, girl. Oh, my gosh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so good to see you. And here uh, you are. I voice. miss you. Yeah, you I too. know. I mean, we text all the time, but like being able to actually like see your face and voice, it's great. I'm, I'm <laughs> so glad we finally got you on the podcast. It's a delight. Delight. It's always I a know. delight for me to hear your voice. I was actually just, <laughs> I was just like, just doing a little bit of refresher before this, and I just found myself watching a Peppermint Best Moments on YouTube, and oh my god, oh my god, that it exists. I'm just sitting here, cry laughing <laughs> by myself. <laughs> we've all seen the, oh, but god. is it fashion? And we've all seen the race, but I hadn't seen that. <laughs> What? About Dylan O'Brien. I don't know what you were. Oh my God, it's humiliating. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea. Oh Lord. (laughs) And then I botched the name of his stupid, his movie, not stupid movie, whatever. (laughs) I'm sorry to bring it up again, but it's new information for me right now. (laughs) It's all good. Anyway, it was only a few months ago. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah, it was like in August or something that happened. Right. What What were you doing? Like a red carpet moment. I was doing a red carpet with with Monet. And so, it, you know, we were like news correspondents or something. So we had, you know, an in-ear thing. And the producers were talking to us. But we, it was so loud there <laughs> and rambunctious and crazy. We couldn't hear them. We couldn't, like, out of the 100 things they told us, I think I heard three. And so you would hear fragments and they're like, you have to like, whenever the, a celebrity comes, you have to like gloat about them and, you know, go on and on. And I recognize his face, but that's it. And I right. knew that he was in a movie that was on my like Hulu or something, but like, that's it. And I was like, who is that? And they were trying to tell us who it was and neither of us could hear. But then she finally got it. But then by that time it was like, he was gone. So we were like, oh, okay. Yeah, I love him. And now all of like Monet's fans are like ruthless and they like whenever I'm around or something, people are always like Dylan O'Brien is whatever. Like they're always haunting me with that name. And I actually they they Monet brought it up on some kind of conversation we were doing recently. And I didn't I forgot. I didn't know who it was again. That whatever this video was, someone is it's probably a Monet fan because they have spliced those two moments back to back. And it's just oh, it's, I on, I honestly thought you were about to do it again when I brought it up. You're like, who? <laughs> it won't be the last time. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Oh, my God. That would be 
honestly, I think my worst nightmare. And you just you just styled it out so so beautifully. No one could be mad at you. Ah, <laughs> well, it was it was like, I mean, we were live on yeah. TV, and I was like, oh yeah. my goodness, I just <laughs> muck, mucked this up. There's no way they're gonna hire me back. <laughs> Imagine, though, like the encyclopedic knowledge of like every twink you'd have to have to do that job, like even just in the gay world. And then like, it's the it was the MTV Awards. And so um, a friend of mine does uh, red carpet correspondence for like, you know, other award shows like the Oscars and the Emmys. And she has to like take a week to research because she's going to be there and like, she, you know, she's going to see like the big stars, the people that are expected of the night. But she also will see like their date who is a celebrity or some musician that mm-hmm. she wasn't expecting. So she has to like be on top of it with everything. And I and I didn't do that type of preparation. And the producers of the show that I was on did definitely <laughs> did not do that type of preparation. <laughs> so none of us knew what was going on. <laughs> uh, I did a like red carpet photo call last week for dirty dancing in london like just the gala night for the musical and it's the exact same thing like you stand up you stand on the thing and then all of the photographers are there and they're all like you know they want you to look at them so that they can get their photo for the thing but uh-huh. they don't know your name and they've just heard the like pr person shouted at them a second ago but they're not really sure what they said and so you've got one person <laughs> being like christopher someone else being like pistol oh, no. <laughs> you're like hey, no. it's fine but like, why would a why would a like jobbing photographer have any idea who I was? Obviously, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's. it's but it's, it's the only humbling. thing. W- I mean, it it would be better, I think, if they were like, "Hey, pretty girl, look over here," but not Christopher. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> oh, so how you been? It's been a while. Bro, I've been good. Thank yeah. you. I've been really good. Uh, just taking, I mean, you know, as as it goes in the drag world, January, like the winter, January and February are generally pretty slow. So I'm just at home. I was mm-hmm. on vacation recently. I went to the mountains, upstate New York, and got, you know, like lived my snow cabin fantasy. Ooh. And yeah, I'm getting ready to go to Los Angeles of all places, which I do not like. Cause I'm gonna, I'll be doing a play out there for like three months, and I'll oh, be wow. in, stuck in LA for three months. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to LA next month, and I'm excited. I love LA. Y- it's you nice to it. go and visit. Yeah, three you months. Know, I think the weather's nice. I mean, everybody talks about the weather. You just never, you can't not hear about the weather. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it's beautiful and it's nice and all those things. But I think I don't like the way the, I've got to be careful with this, but I don't (laughs) like the way the environment and atmosphere cause the people who live there to act. (laughs) That's the best way to say that. Sure. You know, because look, it's, it's people think of, oh, LA, it's a city. New York is a city. What something and Los Angeles is not a city. It's a humongous like suburb of itself. Uh-huh. And it's sprawling Connected and massive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it takes forever to get around. So naturally, you don't want to go and do anything. You don't want to see anyone. You want to stay home. You want to just 
do whatever and you don't want to travel you don't you know and i live in new york city i live in manhattan which is like different boroughs and everything there's brooklyn manhattan and you know but manhattan's like four miles away from from brooklyn and i'm like oh girl i ain't going to brooklyn today but these people are are really snobby about not wanting to travel around and i get it but what it results in is a bunch of flakes mm-hmm <laughs> people just like saying oh yeah i'll meet you and then they just never show up to the cafe uh-huh. that you traveled an hour to get to uh-huh. and in new york it's a little different i think everybody gets it that like your time is precious so like if i have plans with you in new york and we're supposed to meet at noon i'm letting you know at 10 i'm not coming do you know what i mean or i'll let you yeah. know the night before or right away it is just really tough to get good communication out of these people in los angeles i'll tell you that i believe i agree with you there but you know what i will say la has going for it everyone is wearing no clothes all the time and they're all a bit slutty they're naked <laughs> that's yeah. true i agree yeah. and so it's got you know beautiful I'll moments take flake, i'll take i'll take the flakes for a bit of that yeah what's the play that you're gonna be doing uh it's the musical version of transparent the tv show that was on amazon Mm. about a family whose patriarch comes out as as trans, as a trans woman, and then how their lives turn upside down and, and become beautiful after that. And it's written by, it's based on true life experiences that happened, you know, to a couple of, to a family, but a couple of siblings, the Soloway siblings, who uh, were the creators of the TV show. And it starred Jeffrey Tambor, who had some uh, not-so-proud moments. And now uh, the Soloway siblings, they they say they always wanted it to be a musical. And so, the the TV show. And so now mm-hmm. this is their chance to, to produce a musical version of the show, you know? Oh, cool. Congratulations. So I play, uh, I play a lady named Davina who was brilliantly played by Alexandra Billings on the TV show. Okay. Great. When does it open? It opens in LA in May. So you'll be gone by then. Yeah. Dark on it. Yeah. Dark Garnet. Obviously, we both have done two wonderful seasons of Call Me Mother. Yes, we have. Uh, yes, we have. Hopefully I'm a curious. third. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What's Tell me, uh, about, what do you think about Canada now that you've spent all that time there? Well, I definitely think that where we filmed in Canada is... <laughs> Not necessarily <laughs> representative of where I'd like to go in Canada yeah. to spend more time. <laughs> but I, I actually do like I enjoy the people. I enjoy the the way things were, you know, for the most part. And so I really enjoy going all the way up to Canada to film. Um, it's a nice excuse to get out of get out of Dodge. You know, filming a TV show, especially a reality reality TV show, ha- comes with its own set of things that can make it grueling or d- irritating at times. But for the most part, I just really enjoy working. I think had we done the show in like some other city that was actually that was known for film and television like Los Angeles, I think it would have been. I don't think I would have enjoyed the first season as much. You know what I mean? Mm. that's me looking back in sort of retrospect. Yeah. Had a bit of that, like, we're all at camp together sort of vibe. We're all in this together. And it's like, yeah, we're going to get through this experience 
and it was COVID when we did season one and we're in remote Canada. It's like, it's snowing when we arrive. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> I mean, this season we filmed in a skating rink, so... Yeah. Who knows? And if we you get know, season three, who it, knows where we'll be? Who knows? We might get to some kind of shutdown uh, McDonald's. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a bank that went out of business during Ooh, COVID. I would love a bank. I would love a <laughs> that bank. That would actually be like, really cute, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And like the vault. We could use vault could be our dressing room. And then, then we can yeah. finally like talk shit about people and not be overheard. Oh, you know that. <laughs> Oh God! Season one, we were, we were like there was no privacy. <laughs> yeah, our dressing room was literally next door to the dressing rooms of the um, of the contestants. Contestant. And when we say dressing rooms, it was it was fabric walls. So <laughs> Pepper yeah. and I are whispering at each other through the little fabric curtains, like, "Who are we gonna send home?" <laughs> and it's like they're right there, getting ready. <laughs> right there. Oh God! I'm sure they must have heard something. At some oh, point. I think even sometimes <laughs> they, yeah, yeah, those poor, those poor contestants. We do our best. I think because we've both been through it, we like are sensitive to all of that. But mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> how do you find filming being the judge versus being the contestant? Obviously, it's been a while since Drag Race, but yeah, I, you know, I really do. I I do like it. I mean, I certainly like it a lot more than being a contestant. It mm. kind of feels really s- similar in an odd way, you know, at least from my perspective. But I do like not having to go through all the challenges. I think that's my main, the r- main reason why I like it is that we get a little more, a little more communication than the contestants mm-hmm. prior to everything, which I, and I, I was like, n- I know they hated me on that show because I was like the one who was like, can we please get some communication about what, what it, you know, like trying to stop the situation to figure on out, drag like, race. okay, yeah, on Drag Race, on Drag Race. Oh, same, same girl. Yeah. <laughs> and me. so I know that they were like, oh, <laughs> shut this bitch up. Just go over there and, you know, make the dress and, sh- and shut up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, I think, I think that we had some like informal cast vote after and they were all like, who was the squeakiest wheel? And it was, everyone said it was me. It's like, yeah. I'm just too, like, I was too old when I was on that show to, like, be putting up with being treated like a, a child, you know? A peon, yeah. Yeah. I can't do it. I'll do, no. I'm down for whatever, but, like, you got to give me some community. That's what I want is communication about whatever it is. And yeah. that's the last, information is the last thing they want to give anybody on a, a reality show. Yeah, keep them, keep them stressed, keep them in the dark, like, like mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> cool well should we get into your list of items oh my gosh yes we shall i mean i went down memory lane i'm so excited these. i feel like i've spent <laughs> so much time with you and around you but you know you just don't really get to talk about these sorts of things with people until until you've been friends with someone for years and years so i feel like we're advancing our friendship right now we we definitely medium, are and i'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, here through the it. medium of podcasts <laughs> Um, this show has often been called Unlicensed Therapy, so apologies in advance for... <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Good, because <laughs> I, I, I got denied for my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my so you know how the show works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know how the show works. Every week, a guest brings a person, a place, a piece of music, a film or TV series, and a wild card that helps them 
understand, accept, or embrace their queerness. And you have sent me your list, and I am ready to get into it. Let's do it. Up first is your person. And you've said Richard Simmons. Which is a, Do you know expecting. who Richard Simmons is? Oh, I know who Richard Simmons is. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Um, but the UK might not know. So for 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 the UK listeners, yeah, fill us in. Who's Richard Simmons? Richard Simmons is and was definitely in the height of his popularity, which was mostly the 80s uh, and 90s, a fitness guru instructor, basically an aerobics teacher for uh, for the stars in America who was really popular and had a lot of guest spots on like morning TV shows where they'd be like, let's learn how to exercise this morning. And Richard Simmons would come out. And he also later on had his own sort of diet program called Deal a Meal, where you would like lose weight by playing cards. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I don't know about that. One vice, trading one vice for the other. <laughs> um, you can either gamble or eat. Yes, exactly. What <laughs> the thing that was the most remarkable about him is he's extremely uh he has a very boisterous personality, very very loud. You probably could hear him. I was never in the same room with him, but like you would always hear him coming before you saw his face. And he had the most adorable little like curly hair and always wore these like striped shorts that were like very short. And mm -hmm. uh, extremely flamboyant and loud and colorful and energetic and very friendly, seemingly friendly and warm and kind and seemed to be very open um, as a person. Of course, this is just my perception, but this is what like resonated through the yeah. TV. I'm sure that's what brought him back, you know, for guest spots on different things like that. What Peppermint is tiptoeing around is the word flaming. <laughs> yeah, I, I am because, you know... <laughs> <laughs> but like in the, in all the best ways of the word. Uh, 100%. I mean, for real, the first 10 years of him being a thing and me knowing who he was all through the 80s and into the 90s, I don't think everyone would talk about him, but I don't think he ever came out. There was never any com public conversation about his sexuality or mm -hmm. any of that. And I mean, we know what's up, but I still don't think I've ever heard him say, oh, yes, I'm gay. In fact, he would sort of play around with that and like, especially in the early days, be like, oh, this is my, I have a crush on you, you know, uh, Kathy Lee Gifford or whoever he was talking to. Uh, like he would play like he was straight, but mm -hmm. it was, it was obviously not happening. What I, but what I loved about him is yes, people, I think in certain circles would, were certainly making fun of him and talking about, but for the most part, like, I don't think there was a single realm. I've seen him do like talk shows with the ladies. I've seen him be a guest on like sports things where they're like, let's get Richard Simmons in here. And he really never seemed to be disrespected to his face. I'm sure there's a lot he had to deal with, but like he seemed to be the queen that could come in and like rule the roost. You know, people just would do what he said, you know, like he had control over his domain and wherever he went became his domain for those few minutes. And he really seemed to own it and was very unapologetic about it. And so that's what I loved about Richard Simmons. Yeah, he's he kind of would wear his flamboyance, like, flamboyance as armor and be like, 
you're not going to use this against me because I'm already leading with this and I'm making it my strength. Exactly. In a time yeah. when being gay and being out, being gay, period, was obviously very stigmatizing and being out was like seen as something like, you know, pe- the only reason people would have to talk about somebody being gay was how their mannerisms and how they acted. But it was rarely because someone said, hey, I'm gay and this is my life and blah, blah, blah get to know me. It was never that. It was always like, look mm. at that one across the street and sort of everyone else accusing someone of being gay in a time mm-hmm. when AIDS and HIV was, you know, uh, at its height uh, in terms of the epidemic. And there was obviously not many treatments earlier on. There were no treatments earlier on. And he got through all of that seemingly unscathed. I'm sure if we sat down and had a conversation with him, it would be a completely different story. Mm-hmm. And where were you, where in the world were you and how old were you when you kind of first started seeing Richard Simmons? Where did you grow up? I don't really even know this about you. I grew, I was born in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and grew up basically going back and forth between Delaware and Pennsylvania, which is where my family sort of sprawled out in the area. You know, the the interesting thing was, like, as a young, I mean, I don't know when the first time was I saw Richard Simmons, but I was definitely like six, seven, eight years old. And so I wasn't able to, like, go and seek out queer things. I just, you know, that, that wasn't even a thing. And so this was this very loud queer person coming into the living room, you know, mm-hmm. via the TV and my grandmother would turn him on or whatever. And so I, the earliest moments that I can remember are like spending time with my grandparents and my grandmother or other family members who my family was really, um, I can't say they were, they were not progressive by today's standards. They were very tolerant which Mm -hmm. was like lovely back in the day. And so they were like very Democrat, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. left wing, you know, they were never like, oh, look at that F, you know, like they were never rude or anything like that. But it wasn't something that they were like seeking to like support. And so when we would see Richard Simmons come on the screen, it was like, ooh, a treat for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost the fact that he was so pervasive in the culture it wasn't that your parents were necessarily like, this is great. Like, it's cool to be that way. But they also weren't necessarily rejecting it either. So you were getting kind of tacit approval that this is a way that someone could be in the world. Exactly. Exactly. Mm, that's nice. That's really nice. Mm-hmm. I can't actually even think of an example of that from my childhood. Although I'm sure my parents would have had the same kind of approach. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I guess growing up with Richard Simmons, you were, it was, it's like you say, you were like aware that this man, this seemingly homosexual man had managed to make a full life and huge career kind of off the back of being so. Yeah. I mean, honey, nobody was really, I mean, maybe very early on people were like, oh my gosh, this person has the best information about health and fitness. But at a certain (laughs) point. We, we were, were just, just wanting to come in and see somebody flit around. Yeah. Tank tops, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what was it what was it like being young peppermint? Like what age did you start to realize that you maybe weren't gonna fit into the cishet world? I mean, girl, probably right away. Right. Yeah, I think I mean I knew that I was queer, that I was different at a very early age. Uh I mean as early as I could possibly even remember. Really? Probably two or three. I don't know how young you are when you have mm-hmm. memories and as sort of mm-hmm. an ego or a sense of self, but as early as I can remember. At, at, 
preceding any school experience or things like that. And I talked to friends of mine that I've known that whole time, which is a few and far between that I've known my whole life. Um, And they knew. Everybody knew, you know. Right. And, And it was kind of like almost like Richard Simmons. It was undeniable for me in that way. And I knew that I wasn't. I mean, there was a lot of things. Richard Simmons and I are probably more dissimilar than we are similar, except (laughs) for that we are both like loud and flamboyant. But, you know, that was obviously something that led with me as well. And so people would know that the minute I got into the room, there was no hiding. I don't know if I even, I, I attempted to try to blend in probably once or twice, but then it was like, girl, this is just give it up. Everyone else was like, girl, give it up. (laughs) (laughs) That also doesn't sound like the most negative way it it could be. I mean, I'm sure we'll get to some of the the stuff that like, it's not as great. But, you know, even just the the kind of tacit approval again of like, "Eh, come on, like, we all know what's going on here is it's better than nothing. Yeah, that's and that's how we grew up. In mm-hmm. the 80s and 90s, better than nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so you you youngsters listening out there, I know it's not like grandma, but let me tell you, yeah, what you have is way better than nothing today. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you remember any moments when you were that age of like kind of trying to express that otherness or difference and how it was received? From around that time? Yeah, or any time. Really, we can get to the later times as we go along, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if you, if you're saying that like at at two, three, four, five, six, you were already kind of aware. Like, what was it like when you expressed that, and what what feedback were you getting? Uh, well, it it was different from different people. Obviously, I mean, I'd say for the most part, generally, it was negative. You know, it, or at least not supportive. You know, there was a lot of policing. Mm-hmm. You know, especially in school, at school age and things like that, where people would say, oh, that's not what, you know, you're supposed to do. That's not for you. That's for little girls. Da, 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 da. Whether it was like, well, it wasn't, it, it was never really clothing, but like mannerisms and wanting to play with a doll or, you know, those things that I think are pr- probably pretty typical and very basic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I would get, you know pretty much at every stage of school, uh, you know, I certainly had my own like bullies or people that were like wanting to make fun of me and look looking to to make fun of me and isolate me and get others to join in, things like that. You know, I was af- afraid of that happening at every time I would walk into a new classroom or a new grade or something like that. And I would just kind of think to myself, okay, it's only a matter of time until, you know, and it was always the first day, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right away. And I was a bit of an easy target. But I was also, I'm sure that a lot of us had this in common, incredibly friendly and talkative with especially all the girls. Mm-hmm. And so that served me, I think, pretty well uh, at, at many times. And that was the thing that, like, my teachers would always send me home with a letter saying, oh, this one is too talkative. You know, I was always getting in trouble for talking too much. But it was always usually the little boys, sometimes the little girls that were very threatened by me. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten in a few 
tussles, one-sided tussles where they would like beat me up and mm. I would just kind of be like, shit. Ah. Mm. Yeah. And and that was, those were from school kids and that was like the general thing of it. And But there were also moments, like I remember I had, my grandmother had a, um, my grandmother was a very fancy lady and she had all of the furs they were real furs, y'all. Sorry. It was a different a different day. <laughs> and she asked me to go. I, w- I was like her little helper, yeah. you know, uh, because I didn't have any siblings and my mom was a single mother. And so I was I spent summers with my grandparents and things like that. And they did a lot of taking care of me. So she and I became very close and I was like her little helper. And I would always have to like go get her coat or, you know, it's like I was like her little <laughs> servant. <laughs> but yeah. I was fine with that. Hey, we yeah, all want like, a job. I, do you need do you need the fox fur again? Yes. Which one to is it going to be, darling? <laughs> um, and so she would tell me to go get her coat, whatever. And I would. But anyway, one day, I don't remember where we were. I think we were out in public. And I had her coat. And I was just completely overcome with all of the glamour of the coat. And so I put it on myself. I was probably like 10. And I put it on myself and then was like, you know, luxuriating as one would. And she (laughs) did not like that, darling. And she was like, stop it. You look like a faggot. You know, that was her response to that. So she put the kibosh on that. But then there's other times where she was... supportive uh, indirectly and probably maybe even unbeknownst to her i sort of tricked her into being more supportive at various times (laughs) i mean that sounds that sounds rough and like i guess we all have those moments that we were more young that you realize i'm doing something that is making other people uncomfortable or you Mm -hmm. know it's being perceived in a way and, and it's something that I'm just doing because it makes me happy and it's like how do I how do I square those two realities of my happiness versus someone telling mm-hmm. me this thing is wrong it's, it's a bizarre bizarre thing but I'm glad it sounds like it didn't really dim your light it didn't it was nearly impossible to you know and it wasn't until I guess if I had to like figure it out, which now is like when I'm starting to think about it for the maybe one of the first times, is when I was much younger and sort of the very extremely formative years, I felt like for the most part, again, it's important to stress to folks that like this was a different day and age. And so as early back as nearly 40 years ago. And so Mm -hmm. people, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of like acceptance of being queer or gay or people talking about it as a family and like the community rallying. Like that was just like not a thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> at least not that I experienced and I had ever seen. Um, and in fact, the antithesis was usually how it would go. People would be kicked out of their houses or, you know, obviously made fun of and bullied and treated poorly. Uh, and so the fact that I was able to get at least the first few years of my life in while growing up without experiencing any major thing, I think is what locked in whatever was going to be the future. And so even though later on when I started to become more selfish assured and more um, confident 
in my queerness to do and say things that I knew in the past probably would have been a no-no, but I'm feeling more bold now. Mm. It wasn't until that moment that people would push back against like, okay, that's too bold. Then I would start to get that. But earlier on, they were like, oh, you know, oh, they're just creative. Like, that's all I was getting. Mm -hmm. And they're just creative or they're such a performer, Mm -hmm. you know, and I kind of use that to my advantage. They love the ladies. Yeah, they're so artistic. And, Uh oh, they're going to have a a wife in no time. I was like, no, no, I'm not, girl. (laughs) (laughs) When you were young, were you think, did you think there's just something that's different about me? Or did you not even really aware, were you not really aware of that? And you thought, I'm only being told that there's something different about me. Or did you have an innate sense that, you know, I don't want to be perceived as the gender that people tell me I am? I knew very early on. And I think a lot of it has to do with this is probably where the queerness was more attached to my gender than my sexuality. Mm -hmm. Although to the outsider, it just they were just like, you're a gay boy. Like, that's what they were telling me. Mm-hmm. And I never really assumed that for myself. I never really claimed that as for myself. It was that I knew I was a girl, you know? Right. And so I was just doing what all the other girls were doing. But to other people, it looked like I was being a gay boy. Mm-hmm. That was a very early kind of perception that I was able to develop. I was like, okay, this is what they think it is. This is what it is. And sometimes, and I didn't really have the language or vocabulary or certainly even the the ability to communicate that in a way that other people would understand. And, you know, I didn't experience trans folks, you know, I didn't experience trans men until I was an adult and I didn't experience, and I'm, I'm talking about like even through media, mm. trans women until many years later. And so for the longest time, I was just like, I'm just really girly and there's and there's nothing I can do about it. Like, that's all it was. I knew that I was different in that way very, very early on. And my first time coming out was in second grade. Um, I've told this story before, but I was in second grade and I was out on the playground and there was this there was this boy who had gotten transferred. He was like a new student transferred in from Ireland. And so like. That was like exciting. And he, you know, just didn't, he clearly did not grow up with the same kind of whatever that he would have had he been in America. And so he just seemed more open-minded and kind of just like, well, it is whatever, whatever. And so he's the person I chose to come out to. And he was also kind of isolated, I think, because like he just, he didn't fit in right away. I think people just didn't know how to receive him. So there were many times where it was just him and me on the playground. And so I came out to him and I didn't even have the words, you know, to, I didn't know what I was talking about, but I was like, listen, I'm different. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I get it. It's okay. Mm. You know, and we were in second Mm. grade. And so what's that like nine, Mm -hmm. eight or nine years old. And so from that moment, I knew that there were people that uh, would be like sort of a safe haven for me, people that would be protectors in my mind um, that were not going to like bully me or hurt me or anything like that. And so 
I, but I knew that I would have to like do work to like find that, seek those people out. Um, which is what I spent the rest of my time doing, like growing up. Yeah. That's crazy. I think that's whenever I speak to trans folks, especially kind of of my generation, that there just was no representation. So it was people like Richard Simmons that you had as role models or blueprints or like Mm -hmm. ways of thinking that's, that's who you were, but it's such imperfect representation for what you needed. <laughs> Let's move on to your next item. Okay. Um, up next, we've got your album or song, and you have said, Jody Watley, Don't You Want Me. Now, <laughs> I, I gotta admit, I didn't know this song. I know Jody Watley, but I didn't know this song. It's great. <laughs> oh, I love the song. For our generation, most of the music that I heard came by way of my mother making the decisions about what was going to be played. Mm-hmm. And so she was a big Jody Watley fan. But at the time, and this was probably, I don't remember when it came out, but it was like around the same time as like Madonna. Yeah. Um, like 80s Madonna with like the punky kind of, you know, hair and lace gloves and all that stuff. So probably in the mid 80s, early to mid 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jody Watley was like the black Madonna to me. That's what I kind of put, label her as. And she was black. And so like that was like something more in common that I had with her than mm-hmm. than let's say a Madonna or a Cindy mm-hmm. Lauper at the time. They all kind of had the same style going on in that moment. Jody had like this crinoline dress that she was always wearing and yeah. you know her midriff was exposed and like all the one side of ponytail whatever looking like they rolled her her hair in firecrackers, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> But she was a black woman doing it and singing about her sexuality and sensuality, which was like, I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? Mm -hmm. And it was just something so flirtatious and sensual and sexual about the the song and the lyrics to the song. And and it was like it went right to the trans woman inside, even though I was Mm. probably eight years old or something, um, nine, ten, whatever. And so, yeah, that was um, that was a big moment. For me, that was a, a something that like activated, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Where were you in your life at this point? Like, had you, you you were still kind of in that? I've I've figured out there's something different about me, and I'm going to tell some select few people as needed. But like, this is something that I need to keep to myself. Well, let's see what year I'll tell you right now. It was oh, so this is 1987. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I was eight. She's like. TV age or nine. Age. Yeah, whatever. I was like, I was, I was not yet 10. Uh-huh. So this was after I'd co- sort of around the time or just after I'd sort of come mm. out in second grade. Again, there were no trans icons. There were no queer icons, except for a couple of people who never even said it. But like someone saying, this is me. I'm different. You're different. We're the same. Everyone should be blah, 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 blah. That just was did not exist. And the people who were out as gay, again, were being fired from their jobs. They were being villainized yeah. on TV. They were they were literal what felt like witch hunts for people, even people my age. Ryan White was a young HIV positive boy who had received HIV through a blood transfusion, I think. And he was an out for a while he was like an outcast they didn't want him to go to the school they kicked him out oh they were God. calling him you aids victim and duh, 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 duh. and so he became a big uh advocate for 
obviously for HIV, it wasn't even HIV. People were not referring. It was like AIDS patients. Like that's what people mm. referred to them as because uh, the diagnosis meant in the early and mid 80s that you were going to just die. And so that was what people would foresee for Ryan White. And he was oftentimes on TV shows and interviews with other uh, people who had AIDS and uh, all, many of those people were gay. And so he was, you know, for, I don't know what his experiences were, but he was obviously someone who was very open and and loving to the other people who had AIDS, most many of which were gay. And so that was the first time that like I'd really ever seen someone being loving and caring to a gay person, mm. especially someone who had AIDS. But anyway, like that everyday people were like, oh, Ryan White. And so, you know, there weren't there weren't a lot of people who were uh, good examples of queer folks who did or didn't have AIDS or HIV who were being treated with respect. Mm -hmm. um, and so the people who were like the queer icons for me were like just still closeted and never talked about their sexuality, but it was like through their fashion. Uh, and I'd found that in male examples very early on Richard Simmons Prince who I didn't put on the list mm -hmm. but definitely a queer icon even though mm -hmm. he wasn't gay so being able to find that in sort of my own divas later on Madonna Jody Watley it was like a bloodthirst and I was like I got to find more of these mm. gals and mm. so I think that's the mode that I was in I knew I was like oh Richard Simmons is nice but I'm a woman so I need to veer mm -hmm. towards the women. Like that was the mm -hmm. the decision and the sort of inner sort of monologue that was going on in my head. I, I was still not really very articulate about what I, who I was, what I was to other people. Um, and so I just would go as far as saying, I'm different. You know, I'm a little different, honey. And that was what <laughs> I would say to other people. And people who got it, got it. And people who didn't, well, everybody got it. Everybody got it. Everybody got it. They either liked it or hated it, and they would treat me uh -huh. accordingly. <laughs> uh huh. I can imagine you're also watching Jody Watley and thinking, you know, I want to do that. I want to oh, sing. I want to dance. Yes. I want to perform. I was, I, like, I yeah. was doing it. I would just do it yeah. in the living room, you know, yeah. instantly. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing that and thinking, I I'm gonna be her when I grow up in like all the in all the ways. In all mm -hmm. the ways. Mm -hmm. That's nice. I like imagining that young peppermint <laughs> experience. I was that. definitely in my mom's closet. <clears throat> that was the only closet I was ever associated with. <laughs> getting the, cl the clothing out. Family members m in making excuses for me would always say, oh, you know, this one's just artistic. This one's just uh, an actor, a performer at heart. So then I was like, you're right, and let's perform. And so it's showtime. Oh. And so I would go to my mom's closet all the time and get her clothes. And aside from just dressing up, I would actually like enlist other kids from the neighborhood, take them to my mom's closet, and we would do a whole production. I did Wizard of Oz, and I was very proud of it. I got yellow construction paper and cut out all these little squares <laughs> and laid them all through the house, through sneaking <laughs> through the house to the television and I got the other kids and I assigned them all the roles. You're going to be Dorothy. You you're going to be the lion. To do the lion. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling everyone what they were going to do, how they were going to dress and go to the closet and get your thing. I, I picked out their outfits for them from my mom's thing. 
And then, and of course, what else could we do? So then we just sat and watched Wizard of Oz dressed up, you know, like that's pretty much what it was. (laughs) I did the exact same, but I charged my parents admission. (laughs) (laughs) I was selling tickets. Businesswoman. Like it's going to be 50 cents to see this show. We're going to do I a should, dance from Aladdin. You're so smart. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, that was smart. From an early age. <laughs> I often ask people this, but, you know, there's definitely people who I interview for this podcast that have experience life kind of closeted up until a certain point until they managed to come out and then there's other Mm -hmm. people who never really had a choice in the matter and as you say you weren't ever in a closet because everyone could tell kind of straight away and always and i wonder what you see as both the advantages and the disadvantages of that because i'm sure both existed oh yeah i mean certainly the the disadvantages of that was that there was nowhere to hide and I, I know I keep sound. I hope I don't sound like I'm beating a dead horse, but it's really important to like emphasize to folks that like the mode that everyone was in was we don't like gay or queer folks. Like a safe space for queer folks was not even a thing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so knowing that if I was going to go to a new school or go to a new g- gathering of something or be in public or a group of people that I didn't know that I was meeting for the first time, I knew or even if I was returning to the group, I, I knew that I was going to be made fun of and that I was going to have a hard time. And so mm, mm, a lot of my time and energy just went into sort of mitigating that. And like, how can I reduce how much they're going to be making fun of me? Can I just, what? I don't know what I, I, there wasn't much that I could do, but I was, I spent a lot of time thinking about what could I do, even though the answer was mm-hmm. often nothing. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was a big thing for me and, and really what one of the difficulties of being so obvious and it also probably was sort of polarizing to other people who were queer you know but not out at that young age because i came out at a i mean these days you know people are out like born out it seems like some of them but for me being out in second grade was like i definitely was the only one in the school who was out. I wasn't the only person, but I don't think I found the first time I met another person who said that they were queer in any way was a bisexual boy in ninth or 10th grade. So years later, nearly Mm -hmm. 10 years later of all that isolation, Mm. I wasn't able to find uh, someone my same age. Obviously over the years I had seen other people on TV and seeing some queer people and gay people here and there, but not someone I knew who I could talk to, who I could sort of identify with and find solace with. And so that was the disadvantage for sure, just being out so early. But one of the things I'm really grateful for is that being out so early meant that it only took me a little bit of time to like figure out who I was. Like there's no figuring out. I've known and it's been the same situation the whole time. My preferences mm. here and there may have changed or opinions, but for the most part, it's been the same game. And so I've just been working on the same person my whole life. And so it feels, mm. you know, it always felt right and correct 
and and that's one of the, that's a big advantage, especially forget queer queerness, just being able to see other people my age sort figure out have to figure out who they are for the first time, you know, or still not be successful at it or at a much older age trying to sort it out, which whenever it happens, it happens. But I was I'm grateful that I was able to kind of go through all that much earlier. Yeah. I think oftentimes queer people have kind of a delayed puberty, not not in in the physical mm-hmm. sense, but in the like sexuality sense, because it, everything gets put on hold and pause and has to be hidden away. And it's almost like mm-hmm. when people come out, then they start to actually experience all of that and figure it out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think anyone who knows you or has seen you on TV is aware that you have an incredible self-possession and you kind of always seem like you know exactly who you are and that's one of the wonderful things about you so Mm. i'm grateful i'm grateful for you for that thank you sis (laughs) let's move on to your next item um up next we've got your film or tv series and oh you've given me a three-way i'm so sorry but it's (laughs) (laughs) i I heard you like that sort of thing When you, well, especially when it's these three, we've got yes. Jane Badler as Diana in V. We've got Sarah Douglas as Ursa in Superman Two, and Leslie Ann Warren as Miss Scarlet in Clue. I'm sensing a running theme here. Talk to me about these w- wonderful women. I mean, these ladies are all sort of were all villains <laughs> yeah. for the most part, um, <laughs> and you know, I they were all very just something about them just seems so classy and i love a fancy classy lady who was very <laughs> who like had all the quips and could say just i mean these bitches were cunty there's no other mm-hmm. way to say it and mm-hmm. they would always have like they were reading everyone and just it was like miraculous and refreshing and beautiful to you know I mean, and the the bonus, I don't, you probably didn't know this because I'm not sure if you were aware of V, the TV show beforehand. Um, but I mean, you grew up on the continent of North America, so maybe mm-hmm. it came through. But the the bonus is that Sarah Douglas was also on V and as a smaller role for like a, f- a part of a season or something like that. And she and Diana were nemesis. She played Pamela. And she <laughs> and Diana were nemesis. And it was a where the love triangle where the like the leader sent them they were both sleeping with the same guy. Um and the, you, for those who don't know, V is basically about a bunch of alien invaders who come to the to the country or to the world and they look like humans, but they're actually not. They're actually secretly lizards underneath of their humanoid it's the skin. The original lizard people. Um, to the to the country or to the world and they look like humans but they're actually not they're actually secretly lizards underneath of their humanoid it's the skin. original lizard people it's the original lizard people and they came to rape the planet of all of its uh resources and leave but they have to make nice with us and da, 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 da. and so the one very impatient um sort of commander is uh of the military is this woman named diana and she was a bitch on wheels, honey. I lived for her. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have. I hadn't ever watched the show, but I was aware of it because they rebooted it like 
in they the rebooted it. I think it was all right. Right. But I did go and watch like a best of clips of Diana and I was getting extreme like dynasty cat fight. Very. Oh my. It was, it was the age and the era of the, of the, um, the, so the nighttime soap opera. But we're talking sci-fi costumes. So like I was just, I was totally sold. Big hair, <laughs> big shoulders, laser guns. It's like really, really fast. Yes, ma'am. It was all of those things. And I was, I was like, oh my goodness. Like the costumes, it was like the attitude and the costume. Like you said, big hair, big shoulder, laser guns and running. She was like, and she had, she was running in her heels. And I was like, girl, where are you yeah. running? <laughs> <laughs> the set's only like 30 meters long. Yeah. <laughs> Very dramatic I, I, reactions. Yeah, I guess I see that for you, but like I I guess I I wouldn't have expected you to be like drawn to the the villains so much knowing it's true. knowing your drag and stuff. Like it's it's not like you don't always give villain. I don't. It's not very dark, but I think the villain was the only listen let let's just look let's analyze this you know and i don't really know <laughs> but i'm assuming <laughs> that the gays were the ones who were writing the lines for these ladies i'm assuming oh yeah and yeah. so that queerness came out through them and there weren't you know they didn't allow the ingenue to have any sass any sex appeal any edge, any bite to them back in the day. Like it was, yeah, if you were, you know, yeah, you just need to be helpless and innocent and quote pure and just so straightforward. And so the, the people with all the flair were the villains. These days, I think the writing and creativity is a little more layered and complex in storytelling. But back in the day, it was like, you were just like basically boring as the, the lead or the ingenue. But the villain seemed to have all the fun and you know they had all of the the uh, comebacks and sassy mm-hmm. lines <laughs> and, and so and that's the, what i was drawn to <laughs> yeah and they had the confidence they weren't you confidence, know that's what it was yeah it's like they're not they're not hiding who they are they're owning mm-hmm. it and they're they don't give a shit if you like it or not and if you don't like it they're gonna fucking kill you and yeah that's what we all wanted for ourselves. Girl, you couldn't have said it any better. That's 100% true. That's what it was. It was that that absolute confidence that the three of these ladies had. And so I'll tell you how I was, I mean, of course, I saw myself in them and saw something that resonated with me so much that I took the costume moment up to a new level. And I had... Um, my grandmother, who was a seamstress uh, by trade in another age, uh, make me costumes that like the costumes of these, because of course these costumes didn't exist. And the, like, these are like obscure toys. They, they did not have any of these people in pop culture. You had to watch the movie and that's your taste of it. Um, and so I, it was, a am I guess sort of a cult phenomenon in, in that way. And so I had my grandmother make me the costume, the matching Diana costume, complete with shoulder pads. And she, my grandmother would just, she didn't watch the show. So she was like, what do you need? And so I was being so sneaky. And the, God, the binary, the women's costumes in any of these movies or TV shows or films 
even if they were all in the same military or all the same group, the women's were always very different. They were always more revealing. They always had something different and more sexualized. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I had my grandmother make me the female version of all the costumes. <laughs> you know, even though she thought she was making something, I would show her like, oh, it's like this guy here. But then I would like draw the design because she was like, okay, draw it down and I'll make it. And I drew the design for her. And it was like, you know, hers had a little flare here or a little gold trim on yeah. the thing. And I was like, we're doing that like, one. It's wow, the that male general has really big sequin shoulder pads. And like it's it's amazing that like his the side of his leg goes cuts up right to his waist. Exactly. Like. <laughs> I wow. mean, I wonder, Those did she did that a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're so progressive. I wonder if her, her, um, if that thought ever occurred to my grandmother when she was sewing it, cause she had like cut it out and sew it and pin it and like all the steps to making an outfit and she did it all. And she never, she was like, here's your outfit. And I'd be like, thank you. I'm going to go be the male general. <laughs> and then I would like put a towel on my head and roll around and like fall on the ground. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. What did you do with the costumes? I'd put them on and walk around the house and like be cunty. <laughs> right. Great. And look at you now. Yeah, exactly. What? Nothing's changed. <laughs> Nothing. I was like making snide remarks to people. Oh, you're going to ha- wear that? And I would like walk out of the room. <laughs> I became a different person. <laughs> I became a different person. But the the big one was the Sarah Douglas uh, costume as Ursa. Because hers was like extremely different. Like her costume is these three, uh, again, aliens that came to Earth. And they had the same powers as Superman, for those of you that didn't see Superman 2. So they were strong and had all the same weaknesses and strengths. But they were a trio and Superman was just one. So they would battle him. And one of them was a lady named Ursa. And, oh my God, she was so... She was so cunty. There's just no other way to say it. And she Mm -hmm. was fascinated with... It was General Zod and Nord, whatever, the other two guys. And their outfits were plain. It was like this kind of puffy, plain black thing that they would wear with a little belt. And hers was like V-neck, very low cut. She had slits in both her arms and her legs so you could see her thigh and all of her arm. And she was obsessed with patches, uh, like military um, decorations. And so she would like steal people's patches and sew them on to her own costume. And so I had my grandmother make mine with the patches. And yeah. Yeah, she's kind of giving like evil belly dancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it looks like. <laughs> like Evil it's kind belly of like dancer, harem, harem pants, it, and like yeah, big billow sleeves with slashes cut in. Very much. That's ex- that's the best way to describe it for the listeners. <laughs> and how old are you at at this point when you're like tricking your grandma into making you into an an evil genie? <laughs> and I don't know if I saw. I mean, all these things. Most of these things on my list are from the eighties. And so I was also around 10 years old having her do these things. Yeah, then I think my mindset at the time was, okay, this is my secret. I'm going to for everyone else, I'm I'm being the male general or the male whatever, but for me, I really know who it is and so when I'm alone, I can 
be super flamboyant in my, you know, movements and, and um, mannerisms when I'm playing in these costumes. And they were none the wiser. Not one person knew that I was like telling people this, but I was like, you know, sitting there and I wore <laughs> I wore the the Ursa costume to school for show and tell. You did not. I, yeah, I don't know if I changed into it or I probably didn't wear it all day, but I don't remember. I probably wanted to wear it all day, but I certainly ha- was able to get it on. And so, and I wasn't the only one who wore costumes. Like they, they would say, show and tell, you can wear a costume, you can do it, th- whatever. And so I was like, costume. And I was like, <laughs> I have the perfect costume. And I just felt like it, I felt like I had the powers that she had in the movie when I was wearing mm. the costume, you know? Yeah. Love that. <laughs> early, early drag queen. Early, darling. Early <laughs> yet definite. <laughs> watch out. All we can say is just watch out when you're doing Halloween with your kids because you could be creating a drag queen. I mean, come on. Another thing yeah. to be afraid of, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to your your next item, which is your place. And oh, I'm so interested in this story. It is the gymnasium at Wilmington High School, which is... Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you. I'll let you. This is This is crazy to me. Well, it's not as scandalous as people might expect it to sound. Let's just put that out there. I don't know. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have I shouldn't have uh, um blown the load so soon. Um <laughs> the gym at the high school was really the center for where activities would take place, you know. Yeah, of course. And so me being as incredibly unathletic as everybody knows I am and as I'm proud to say I am (laughs) I spent so much of my time in the gym Uh, I was uh, feeling like a bit of an outcast in school when I got there of course because I was so queer and people were immediately targeting me and so I joined every club and sport and thing that I could in order to keep myself engaged and meet new people Hmm. So I was uh, the manager of the volley- of the girls' volleyball team, and we played in the gym, and that's where I felt so safe suddenly at home in the gym with the girls, and I was able to play, do- not games, but during um, practices with them. And so I was like one of the girls, you know, mm-hmm. and that made me feel great, and that was one of the only places I was able to have that experience. I was also the captain of the basketball cheerleading team, the winter sports cheerleading squad. And so uh, that was basketball. And I was the captain of the basketball cheerleading squad. And so we had our rehearsals and practices in the gym. And I would teach them the moves to whatever dance I was trying to get everybody to do. (laughs) And, you know, I'm sure we did some Janet Jackson shit. Um, And that was, uh, yeah, that was great. And I, I had my uniform. I didn't get to wear a skirt, but I did have the same uniform, just the the male version. Good God. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I felt, I mean, not only did I feel safe and I was with all the girls, but I also was in contr- control, you know, yeah. of the situation then. Uh, so I was in, in cheerleading there. I was also in band. Um, I played 
I would I joined the color garden band, so I was doing flags and twirling. Surprise, surprise. But I um, and I didn't play any musical instruments. But in the during the off season when we weren't marching, you had to if you were going to keep the credit for the class, you had to like pick an instrument. And I was like, Ugh. so like they assigned me something called the bells, which is kind of like the xylophone. And uh-huh. honey, I was so over it in the back of that thing. Ding <laughs> dong ding with the fucking bells. Um, but that's where we had practices. And so all these things that like were allowing me to sort of express my creativity that was also attached to my queerness happened in the gym. Um, Mm. And so, yeah. Oh, the most obvious one. (laughs) During homecoming. Yeah, this is what I want to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) During homecoming, uh, we had a contest um, called the Homely Court. Because, you know, you have the homecoming court where they name a king and queen of the homecoming court. And inappropriately named the home homely court, everyone would cross dress as the game, as like the little whatever in jest leading up to the homecoming moment. And so the football players and cheerleaders were the main people who would participate in that. So I was a cheerleader mm-hmm. and I got to cross dress. So I had access to the drama department's costume closet naturally because I was also in drama class. And so I got the most flea bitten fur coat moth-eaten fur coat that was rattered and tattered and falling apart and i got a very bad fitting pleather skirt and fishnets darling they had fishnets wow and these shoes that actually fit my feet i couldn't believe the shoes fit my feet i was like those are mine darling and i had the shoes that fit my feet and i got a bad had a bad blonde wig I was dressing like Mrs. White from Clue. Yeah. Because I had a, a vi- the uh, pillbox hat that had a, you know, like a lace veil over top. And I was I looking like some widow. And I was walking in feeling so fabulous. <laughs> and everybody else walked in and people were like, ha, ha, ha. I walked into that gym. Honey, they came to get everyone was like, <gasps> they just couldn't take it. And they loved it. And I won the contest. I won the homely court. And I knew, I was like, oh, this is what it is. <laughs> wow. There's so much to unpack there. One, I is this a common thing, a cross-dressing contest at high schools in America? Or is it just your school? Because that is wild to me. It was certain, I mean, it's certain, I don't think our, our school did not stand, was not an outlier. Right. Like, I think that was a, a common thing. And whether it's uh, officially or unofficial, it did surprise me and it probably surprises a lot of people to hear that it was an organized tradition in our school. Yeah. But even if it's not, cross-dressing from, it usually is the football players and the cheerleaders that 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 do it. That's oftentimes who it is because that's like the, the two archetypes of, you know, heteronormative gender and sexuality mm-hmm. and the hunks are playing football and the the pretty girls who are the popular ones are, are the cheerleaders which works out really well in my favor you know as a queer cheerleader who you know i was like oh my god cross-dressing so nobody thought that that's what it was going to be but that's what it was going to be and so yeah it was uh it was refreshing and it was the, the, i credit that as the beginning of my drag career that's amazing and you say like you won and you remember that it's like a celebration it's not like it the, was a celebration was, there was no oh it was, was a no celebration there was no yeah i was not afraid i mean uh, somebody might have been up in there laughing but they were certainly the the minority 
because what was undeniable was how how good I looked, especially in comparison to all the other football players who looked terrible, couldn't yep. walk in heels, didn't have it together. Their outfit was not going together. <laughs> Their hair was a mess. They were all coming in looking like grandmas because they like were they like went old the easy ways to go old lady. They were like looking terrible. And Read I came them. in. <laughs> I mean, it was true. I came in put together every detail. Even though it was busted and clearly second, third, or probably 100th hand-me-down, it was together. It was a whole outfit. You saw me and you said, I know who this woman is. Uh It was undeniable. Plus, I felt like a million bucks, even though I looked like about five or six dollars. I felt like a million bucks and they couldn't couldn't take it. And they were like, yeah, there's, you're, you're not, you can call me anything you want. Put ugly... And and um, not put together on that day, you could not. I don't. You could beat me up, but you better say this bitch looks but looks, looks better good. than any of the other bitches up here. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I feel like that scene, if it were in a like high school movie, would be like it would be a scene of bullying. And I love that for you, it was like, oh no no no, I'm in. This is my power moment. This is my like. I love it. it. I love it, love it. Absolutely was my power moment. And and I was so I was very validated. And that's where I, you know, I guess I'd spent all this other time and 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 everything dressing and sort of going roundabout, like tricking my grandmother into making the costume and kind of telling people it was one thing, but it was really another. This time it it was what it was. There was no denying it. This is me. And and I got acceptance for it. And so it was reward. It was a great reward. And then from that moment on, I was hooked. Mm. Mm, I love it. When did you actually start doing drag? How did that happen? I started doing drag. I mean, really, <laughs> that day. And then, then every and then. Halloween since then, uh, I had a, a girlfriend of mine uh, who I knew, really close friend of mine. Her name is Anne Slater, who I'm still very good friends with, who... Uh, was one of the people who I sort of gravitated to who were very accepting and protective and open and, and and you know, place where I knew I could go. And they always said, if you ever need anything, if something's wrong, if you're being bullied, come to us. You can spend the night at our house, whatever you want to wear. Like, it was like that. Mm-hmm. And so I had a few of those people in my life. Anyway, so Anne was, you know, because I, I had the outfit that I'd worn for the homely court from the drama class. I had to get that back. It wasn't mine. Although the drama teacher was like, girl, you look amazing. You know, like, and I was, I was just waiting for the next moment where we would do a play and I'd be able to like wear it again. Mm. And my cheerleading costume was shorts. And so I was like, oh, and and my mom was not like, we were not at the stage where like my mom was going to buy me a dress. And so Anne, who was a Catholic school girl and had um and whose mother was a catholic school teacher uh had all the catholic school uniforms one could ever want Mm. and so i was able to go i basically went as a catholic school girl my first time in drag on a halloween and then for the next four years during high school i was catholic school girl because that's the dress i could get um and i looked great in it and so that was my kind of foray into like repeating drag and kind of doing it on my own terms, Mm. you know? And that was obviously like, you know, if you're going to dress 
in drag. Halloween is obviously the, a great day. That's when all these drag queens are born, generally, yeah. at least pre-drag race, pre-Instagram. Yeah. And, um, and you know, no one's going to make fun of you. It's kind of sanctioned and people, you know, are cool with it. Yeah. Looking back at that, like, how do you, how do you see a separation or do you see any separation between your trans identity and drag? Do you just see them as kind of serving each other or yeah, was that another step on the, on the way to transition or was it you figuring out a different way to like, were you calling it drag and you didn't see it as that? I was calling it drag. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't calling it drag because yet, because drag didn't have quite a, place in the mainstream and it was always mainstream drag has always been mainstream in a way but the idea of drag really yeah i know what you mean there was no um mainstream connection that people had to to drag on a daily basis and so i wasn't calling it drag in those days when we were if you would mention drag people would instantly think of like a gay bar and something and i was too young for that and so i was just thinking of dressing up as a girl mm-hmm. um, for, you know, for Halloween or whatever. And I would just be like, I'm going as a cheerleader. I'm going as a, 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 a school girl. And that was as, as much of the description I would, as I would give it. And yeah, I think that was pretty much how I would talk about it and describe it to people and, and show them pictures and wait for their reactions. Cause they were always like, Whoa, you look so pretty. <laughs> lying, probably lying to me. I don't know. But I did see a separation later on i didn't really see much of a separation then Mm. initially i i found it it was just really therapeutic and something i was craving to get dressed up in a skirt in hair and these things and i would just tell people i'm a cheerleader for halloween and that's all they needed to know but really i was tapping into something that i desperately wanted to do 365 days a year really yeah and and so there wasn't a separation between my early drag and my transness, especially considering that I wasn't able to medically transition until many, many years later, uh, nearly 20 years later at that moment. Yeah, that was that was pretty much the only outlet that I had for doing anything like that. And so there wasn't a there wasn't a separation so much that I took it so seriously. I took it so seriously, like I wanted to have the most realistic hair and the most realistic thing. I wanted to be convincing. I did not want it to be, and and this is, it didn't matter early on, but like um, the last thing I would have wanted was people to laugh at me, mm. especially since they laughed at me when I was out of. I didn't want them to laugh at me when I was putting all this effort into, which was different than the football players who were putting on some granny wig, yeah. you know, and having these low hanging boobs that would like go down to the ground. I wanted to be convincing. And that carried over into my drag when I started doing it in nightclubs and bars years later was I just wanted to look like a real lady. Mm-hmm. And that worked well for a while because in the in the 90s, when I started doing drag and when I had access to drag in the bars and clubs, that's what anybody wanted. Like every everybody just wanted to look real. Yeah, they did. There there wasn't as much camp happening. It, you know, the the flavor of the month for drag was just like look convincing. You know, and so that really w- served me in, in my formative drag years. Right. And when did you settle that in your head? That because you said you know growing up that you hadn't seen anyone trans, you didn't know what being trans was. When did that finally happen for you? Well, you know, for the first several years, you know, late 80s, early, you know, I went to high school. High school for me was 92, 93. Um, 
And so for the first couple of years for me in high school and all that, um, it was really just the meeting of, I desperately want to be, to act like a girl and this is my one chance to dress like one. And that's yeah. all it was for me for, for so long, yeah. um, for, for the first few years. And so I didn't, I didn't start it articulating that I was trans by today's definition until a couple of years after that. I still just knew I'm really feminine and I really like dressing as a girl. And the folks that I would connect with, of course I connected. Okay, so by the time late high school came around um, and I was almost ready to graduate, you know, halfway through like junior, senior year, I had met a couple other gay folks, gay boys. And we were, of course, we were fast friends and we were all in the dance troupe together and all the different things. But I could tell that there was something that wasn't the same about me and them. Now I would describe that as my transness. Um, but back then I was just like, well, I'm just a little more flamboyant and a little more ladylike than they, than they are. They're more flamboyant. I was more ladylike, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That was all the, as much as I could do. But at the time we were kind of all in the same box and it was probably around that time that I was able to start seeing, um, trans women on TV. I think the first real one was probably... Um, probably Jerry Springer was the first time right. um, I'd ever really seen. I'm sorry. <laughs> God, girl, you know, I'm surprised that he his show stayed on the air as long as it did. I think it might even still be on the air. But, you know, this was like trans women coming on to confess their love and to confess their love to someone and come out to them at the same time as trans. And then their lover would always have this horrible reaction and beat them up, hit them with the chair, hurt them. And so I was like, well, that's not me. You know, like, I I don't want that to happen. So for the longest time, I was like, okay, there is such a thing as trans. I mean, the word that we were using then was transsexual. The, there is such a thing as transsexual. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a transsexual, but I don't want to get beaten up and I don't have money for surgery. So I'll just keep doing, I'll just keep dressing up and people, you know, I was f fucking 16, 17, 18, 19. Darling, I had youth on my side. I was like, I don't even need, I'll never need plastic surgery. I'm just so young and convincing. And so that was what I would rely on was like just makeup and hair. And I the the place where I was able to do that more and more, and I didn't want to just dress up and sit at home. I wanted to go out and be around the world and connect with people and and have form relationships as a woman with people. The only the most accessible way to do that was was doing drag, you know. Yeah. And so that's what I saw it as for a while, and I was like, oh, I'm just like more. Again, there wasn't as much of a delineation between drag and trans. Um, as there is now. And so many of the girls who did drag were also trans. And so it was just like, the, basically, it was what you did, meaning the d way to differentiate was whether or not you had surgery, not whether or not you were dressing. And so everyone was dressing. And then there were girls who would go and get surgery, and we called them titty girls, titty queens. Mm -hmm. And you, if you, you were all drag queens, but those are titty queens. And the titty queens... Mm -hmm would do it during the day, obviously, and, and dress during the day. Um, and so you would call them full-time. Oh, are you full-time? The full-time girls 
were the ones who were trans and had some surgeries. Mm-hmm. And the part-time girls were the ones who would just put it on for the show. And so I was a part-time girl, but felt like a full-time girl. And that's kind of just where I was. Yeah. It is so different to now, isn't it? Where, I mean, there's obviously still a huge number of trans people in the drag community, but I think because people are able to express their trans identity younger and younger, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily need to go the route of drag anymore as like a, a way of figuring themselves out. Yeah. H- how do you look back at that now? And like, how do you see performing as a drag queen when it, you're performing your own identity? If that makes sense. It does. I, know, I mean, I'm sure you've talked about this a lot, but. Well, yeah, I don't mind it. The, the, you know, it's looking back is really interesting. I mean, there are moments as early as I was sort of out as just being queer and unapologetically, obviously very different. I do wonder what it would have been like for me had I grown up during today's time uh, and had access to all the information that people have access to now, uh, which didn't exist. It's not even like the the information was there and I just didn't have access to it. You know, even when I was coming out as trans and going to, even when I was, I came out as trans years, 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 years before I'd ever had any um, medical, began my medical transition. And so when I went to begin my medical transition, I already knew, again, who I was. I felt very secure in that. But now I was going to do some some type of procedure or whatever. And I was looking for doctors and healthcare providers. And I was encountering left and right. I was literally calling in the phone book to just any doctor, like starting with A and going through the phone book for, to doctors to say, hey, I'm transgender. I need X, Y, and Z. Can you, uh, oh, we don't do that sort of thing. And there wasn't like a trans healthcare clinic or there wasn't like a place where you could go mm. to get information or, or you know, other trans women were the only resource. And so a lot of the girls went to the same doctor. And I wanted to get on hormones first, which is oftentimes what people will do in the beginning of their medical transition. And I couldn't even find a doctor that would would prescribe me hormones. Like, I just could not find it. And so that was a while. That took a long time for me to sort through. Obviously, you know, it was kind of a, a weird thing because I, in high school, was feeling more and more bold and more and more self uh, assured and I you know was going with my best girlfriend at the time to go get my nails done acrylic nails and I just had acrylic nails 24/7 I had a weave in my hair and I will never forget I was like Janet Jackson was like super popular so I had like this really curly Janet Jackson hairdo um and I would <laughs> remember we had this really strict English teacher she was so strict like she was like military and I would come into class. You could not be late, but I would come into class early, plug, because I couldn't do any of this at home, plug in my curling iron on the chalkboard next to the teacher's desk, wait for it to get hot. I would curl my hair at the front of the class. She did not care. She was like, girl, do what you got to do. And I was like, God, this woman is a bitch, but she sure is nice to me curling my hair. And I curled my hair every morning, every morning. (laughs) And as long as I was in my seat on time, she was like, you are good to go. And I was like, oh, my God, this is wonderful. And so I would curl my hair every day because I couldn't do any of that at home. Like, I had a weave, but I would, like, wrap it up in a thing like nobody knew. And so I was hiding a lot of that. 
and by that time, I was out of my mom's house. We had had sort of a big blow up, and she was not really um, queer accepting for, for a, a time being. So I went to live with an aunt who was very tolerant. As long as I got good grades and did my work, then, which I did not get good grades, she would allow me to stay there and I could wear whatever I wanted. Um, and so that I was like relying mm -hmm. on that kind of energy from a lot of the women in my life, a lot of the black women in my life to get through. And, but I think of like what would have happened had I had I'd, that English teacher said, you know, have you, here's someone who's trans, have you thought about that? Like I didn't have access to any of that. Um, and so I just kind of had to make do with what I, what I had, yeah. just dressing when I could. And then I found that like after high school, once I had nails and hair, I never went back. It that was mm -hmm. not dressing up for me. That was my daytime thing. And so okay. when I graduated from school and went to get jobs, I went in with hair and nails. Right. And yes, facial hair. <laughs> and people did not know what to do with me. And so I got fired from many a job because I was not fitting the the gender role expression that they that right. they would have wanted. So I got fired and fired and fired. And eventually I was like, girl, I have to go perform in drag because that's the only place where I'm going to be able to do what I want and not be fired for it or whatever. Yeah. And so that's when I really took a deep dive into my drag life. And I kind of veered away from what people would expect for a trans woman because I didn't have access to money for trans for medical transition. There weren't any doctors that were going to do it for me. I just didn't have access. So I was mm -hmm. like, well, I know I'm trans and I can I labeled myself a non-op trans, which probably would have been people would have maybe was non-binary kind of like i don't know mm -hmm. but i was non-op trans i knew i was trans but i didn't have the money or any of the resources to get any operations so i'm non-op trans and i'm going to be looking fly every day of the week though and night and that was what i did for 20 years i love that Wait, <laughs> you, wow and you were saying that you were a part-time girl but really like to you part-time is like hair nails oh yeah look. that's my part that's my <laughs> yeah. like tame down look and then the uh -huh. the, the glamour the, the sequence like would come out presenting. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was still all very much in the gender non-conforming yes all. very much yeah. deep in it Baby, let's get on to your last item. Okay. And it is your wild card. Um, you've said black queer icon Angela Davis and uh, her approach to intersectionality. Yeah, and the Black Panthers of it all. Let's talk. Yeah, you know, I, I always had seen and heard of the Black Panthers, um, the Black Panther Party in bits and pieces. And of course, you know, they were often portrayed in film and television of the 80s and 90s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, a lot of black exploitation films will have the sort of um, vigilante groups also, also being the Black Panthers. Uh, and they were, you know, a political movement in addition to sort of community organizing and help help and things like that. And they were really, you know, fighting back against police brutality, mm -hmm. which was is and or was and always has been and hopefully won't always will be a problem for the black community in in America. 
um, operating as an arm of white supremacy and capitalism, the police, they do. And so the Black Panthers were seen as a way to sort of fight back against that. I believe that the Black Panthers were really more to to combat the, again, almost always white, exclusively white uh, police forces that were going into the communities and and arresting people en masse mm-hmm. and brutalizing the men in the in the communities. Some people tried to position the Black Panthers as um, the antithesis to the Ku Klux Klan, which it wasn't. Oh. Um, the Ku Klux Klan was way bigger, way more widespread, and you know just very different in that the Black Panthers were an answer to a lot of the brutality and discrimination that black folks were facing in their everyday life. Mm -hmm. And they also did a lot of things for the community, um, feeding the community, making sure people had housing and things like that. And so there was just a lot more cultural relevance to, um, you know, there was a um, group in in New York run by a now Republican conservative man named Curtis Sliwa, who was the um, leader of a group called the Guardian Angels. Um, And the Guardian Angels were a group of just citizens on patrol in New York in the high crime New York 80s and early 90s where the police forces were not really able to access and really help people. The, The Guardian Angels would ride the subway, save people from being mugged, things like that. And so... The, that's what it felt like to me, like the, the Black Panthers really were. But anyway, hmm. the Black Panthers were run famously by Huey Newton, uh, who was murdered uh, in his sleep at like four o'clock in the morning by the FBI and the police. You know, as leaders in the Black community often are murdered <laughs> yep. by by the police or by the FBI or the government forces, whatever, yep. you know, uh, Arguably, possibly Martin Luther King being the most famous of, of those. Who, who knows? Yeah. But Huey Newton uh, had a lot of uh, folks around him as his side, you know, right hand man and right hand women. And so one of those women was Angela Davis, who was, I believe, sort of a confidant and operated in the in the Black Panther Party. Uh, she was very well read, extremely intelligent. And she was, uh, it was really important for her, for the movement, uh, I believe, to not, to not be so patriarchal. Mm -hmm. And so she was very much trying to advance women's rights within the movement and seeing, you know, when they were often faced with like, how does the black community survive and thrive and evolve, you know, it can't happen without the help of women and queer people. Mm-hmm. And so she was, who also identifies as queer, was also a proponent of like, you know, making sure that lesbians and gay men had prominent places and things like that. And so so she was, uh, on top of being an anti-capitalist, self-described, um, self-identified communist, she uh, was very instrumental in this sort of intersectional thought because I think the men of the, and I'm sort of saying this for myself, I don't really know, but the men in the Black Panther Party and movement were very happy for it to be about like the old fashioned ways of doing things, but for Black men and making sure that Black men were were the ones in charge and that they would lead the community. People like Angela Davis wanted to make sure that there was, that, that 
that there was intersectionality in in their approach. And she introduced sort of that idea, uh, very like that term to the Black Panthers and understanding how poverty and sex and gender and sexuality uh, and obviously race and class worked differently for different people in different combinations. Yep. And so that's why now I view her as a queer icon for myself. I had the opportunity to interview her a couple of years ago with Bob the Drag Queen, and mm. she's just an amazing woman, you know, and I'd always seen her imagery. She's the, the what people would call militant black woman with the afro and putting her yeah, hand yeah, up. Yeah, with the fist yeah. up. And yeah. so, yeah, I think she's an amazing person. I love that. How do you look at intersectionality these days and and how do you as vital put that into your life? Yeah. Intersectional thought, I think, is what we have to, especially when we're talking about like things like social justice and and social issues in 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 general, things that affect groups of people. I think we have to think intersectionally. And I it didn't really have as tangible and clear a uh, meaning to me and application in my life until 2020, mm. unfortunately. I don't even know that I've really heard and certainly wasn't using the term uh, so readily until tw after 2020 when, you know, Black Lives Matter protests were happening all over the mm. world. And as a Black woman who's trans, queer, I felt like I what didn't have a space in that movement, but I what I was there participating and and marching, you know, anything that had to do with BLM that I could have gone to and shown up and support, I would have and did. But for when there was a trans woman murdered in my neighborhood, I wasn't able to see any of my community coming mm. together. I was able to see trans women coming, but I wasn't able to see uh, black folks who maybe didn't identify as queer showing up. This is a black woman who was killed murdered in the in the street didn't see them coming through and also didn't see the gays the white gays were nowhere to be found mm. and so that's when the idea of that was actually before 2020 but that's when i was like gosh different parts of the community are different and i was that's as that's how i was able to describe it the word intersectionality didn't come into play until much later and i was able to see it very vi vibrantly in 2020 uh when you know I didn't feel necessarily like I fit in at some Black Lives Matter events, not all, because the people started being more intersectional and realizing that we needed to be inclusive. And then also when we were in the pandemic, in the thick of the pandemic, and there was suddenly these outcries from many online gay white men who were like, I can't believe we have to be locked in here and can't go to a gay a gay pride dance. But the, the Black folks are out here marching in the streets for BLM. And I was like, oh, these are two different things, darling. Oh, no. And so I was like, okay, now I'm oh, no. now I'm seeing, now I'm seeing it. <laughs> we are in the same community, yeah. but we don't understand the same things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so much to be done for sure. When did you start to realize that like, that activism was something that you were passionate about, but also good at? How long has that been a thing for you? Because I think it's something that everyone knows about you. I would say when I was, um, well, I think growing up in the 80s and 90s, we had our, I had my share of experiences with social issues that there saw a lot of movement, uh, movements being formed around them. Obviously, AIDS and HIV, poverty, 
drugs and drug use and things like that. And so the, for the, each of these things, there were all these big sort of social movements that kind of were supported all at the same time and sort of synchronized differently than they would be now. I think people have their way of sharing their stories on social media and and that resonates in a very beautiful way for people. But it, we don't all experience it at the same time. It's a very bad example, but Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign mm. was something that every child in every school experienced. There was like a day where we were all doing it across the country um, for the same. There was something called Hands Across America, which was to address um, starving you know, folks in Africa, feeding the children in Africa. And it was literally... There was a song that all the celebrities sang and participated in. It was a music video. And it was like Hands Across America Day. I don't remember what day it was. And everybody was supposed to go outside, put on your T-shirt, and literally link hands and in the town. And then someone from the next town would hold your hand. And I guess it was un an unbroken chain of people holding hands. I don't know. But like that was a movement, right? And everybody was like synchronized at the same time and the same thinking and the same sort of pace. There were so many of those. We Are the World, which was a big old song that mm. all the stars sang on, again, to address the feeding, the starvingness, uh, starving folks in Africa. And so I just grew up with all of that. And so this sense of sort of charity and, and act activation was always, was, was instilled within me from an early age. Then I was able to experience, I'm going to credit this, I can't believe it, I love her so much, Mistress Formica, who was a legendary, she's still around, uh, drag performer. If anybody's ever seen the movie w um, Wigstock, mm. then they have seen Mistress Formica. She's the one who sings, uh, You Gotta Fight for Your Right to Be Queer. She rewrote the words to a, a Beastie Boys track. And she was very politically active, and she was a bit of an anarchist, um, you know, just hated the man, hated the system, and she she was gonna preach about it at every single drag show, and so I kind of got I I kind of came up under her. She's a bit of a mentor in that way, and so I I I was like, oh, we have to use our drag to help our community. Like that's what I learned very early on, and so then I did so um, using my actual drag platform, and I was able to, you know, um, organize like AIDS and HIV education events. And I was volunteering with different groups here and there. I, I went and um, worked for certain LGBT groups to do like fundraisers and auctions for the HRC and for obviously now GLAAD. And so that was all connected to like my, me as a drag entertainer. I love that. I love the connection with Angela Davis. And it's so cool that you got to meet her an interviewer and, um, that you continue to like carry on the work that that she did. It's really neat. She what is an amazing woman. Peppermint, thank you so much for sharing your items. It's been really, really nice hearing those stories and, and just getting to know a little bit more of, of your backstory. It's really been a treat. Yeah, girl, I love talking with you. And and now we're we I have got to create a podcast and bring you on <laughs> to learn more about you. And I can tell you yeah. about I can tell you about the the evil women in my childhood. I want to know all of them. I might have <laughs> I might have liked them though because we know how much I love the villains. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um before you go, a quick game yes. uh of but is it queer? Do you want to play? Oh, yeah, of course I do. Let's do it. All right, Gorgie. Okay, so we're just going to give each other a couple items and we'll decide once and for all if they're queer or not. Okay, I'll start. Facetune. 
Gosh, Facetune really is. I mean, yes, it's definitely queer because it. I think Facetune introduced, is introducing, will introduce, has introduced the world of makeup and plastic surgery to people who would have never, ever thought about it, you know, otherwise. Yeah, for better or for worse, probably. It's like creating idealized versions of yourself. You're like, this is great. I could be like this. I could look like this. But also that sense of joy where you're like, I will never look like this. It's like, and that's the queer experience. <laughs> 100%. Um, okay, I have one. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what this is called. Okay, go. And I don't want to be culturally <laughs> insensitive. But I have one in my living room and I feel like everyone does. <laughs> All the queer people do. I want to call them a Chinese lantern. It's like a, it's like, like a paper, a lantern? paper lantern. That's a ball, and it, and it's like if you buy it, it's flat, and then it expands and turns into a big ball, and then you screw it on with the light bulb. Uh-huh. It's like a ball. Uh-huh. It's like, a, and wh- you know, has a hole in the yeah. bottom. But <laughs> those are wait. So is it a ball? Yeah, it's a ball. It's a ball. It's a ball. <laughs> Those I think are yeah. so queer today. I don't know any per- any Chinese person of all my friends that I have. Like, I don't know that many folks, I guess. But I don't know any other person. If you have it in your house, you're queer or gay. <laughs> okay. Well, you heard it here. They're queer. You're queer. I'm not even entirely sure what she's talking about. But they are fucking queer. Let me, let me see. Hold on. Let me see if I can find it. <laughs> yeah, 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 know. yeah. I think I do know what you're... You know what I'm talking about, right? I think I I'm do. I'm going to send you a picture right do, now. But here I they also... are, right? It's, they, uh-huh. they took out the word Chinese. Now they just call them paper lanterns, and that's good. They're just paper lanterns. But here they are right here. Okay. I know I know what you're talking about, and I have to say I have never given a moment's thought to these uh, light fixtures. And so I'm, I'm going to just defer to your judgment and say, yes, 100% queer. They are queer. Look how gay they are. They're balls. Yeah, Christ they're sake. big old balls. If, I mean, if anybody has that hanging in their house, you know that, that that's a festive Sorry. person. at least (laughs) festival of lights (laughs) okay having an electric toothbrush oh yours and mine are in the same vein um the next one i'm actually gonna say queer i think i am too i'm gonna say queer yeah because just that little bit of extra tension and hygiene extra you don't need an electric toothbrush and yeah. at least the no. cis hetero men are not known for their attention to any type of detail, let alone in the world of grooming or health and beauty. Yeah. And so, and I mean, I have an electric toothbrush. Every, uh, yeah, an electric toothbrush seems to be the standard. And it's not the standard for the, the straight men in, that I know. I know that for a fact. Neither is like washing their hands, even after the pandemic. Well, <laughs> That, that. Okay, the only thing that could be queerer than an electric toothbrush is if they can somehow invent like a bamboo electric toothbrush. So it's oh my gosh, well, that's the dream. Yeah, we need like I'd use it. It seems like it might be a little then, then, then. Yeah, it won't work. But like that's when we know we're living in in a queer utopia (laughs) when it's simultaneously electric and and biodegradable. Yeah, it's not, I don't want to be the test <laughs> yeah. subject for that. No, no, <laughs> no. We'll let someone else do that part. Okay, I have one. Okay, you give me it's one so more. It's so simple. Yeah. Cold brew. Cold brew? Obviously <laughs> queer. <laughs> I can't be the first person that's mentioned that on your show. 
No, no. I mean, iced coffee, we know. I feel like cold brew is like the it's, next cold level. Cold brew is the next level. Coffee. I didn't even know. I, I've heard of iced coffee and yeah. that <laughs> is like, you. and even if you've never had it, you, you can instantly, you get it. Iced coffee. It says it in the name. Yeah. Cold brew yeah. is a whole yeah. nother thing. <laughs> <laughs> is this new information to you? No, I've heard of cold brew, obviously, but it's only been through <laughs> my queer or queer centric, which isn't doesn't mean gay yeah. people in my life who are like so hipstery. And so yeah. like, you know, I mean, if you're a hipstery and you're, yeah. you know, then you're basically queer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Cold brew is is like someone was like, hey, gay, I know you like iced coffee. But like you ready? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hold my cup. Yeah, very much, very much. <laughs> and they never look back. Now they're like, yeah. oh, they're getting, you know, and they 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 change the the culture. Now like Dunkin Donuts, which was no one ever said Dunkin Donuts is a sophisticated cafe. But here they are with their cold <laughs> brew, darling. <laughs> Same I mean, you know from Canada, the Tim Hortons, the Tim Hortons there, they're doing the cold brew, so it's just the gay agenda. It works. And I'm, I couldn't be happier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it just goes to show if you try hard enough, you can make anything queer. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go. Toothbrush to coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Baby, it was so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you are the best. Absolutely. <laughs> There you have it. That was my chat with Peppermint. And that was the final episode of season three of The Things That Made Me Queer. As I said, I don't know if or when I will be back with more episodes, but fingers crossed I will be. And hopefully it won't be a whole damn year this time. I love you so much. Thank you for listening. And until the next time I find myself in your ear holes, well, you stay queer out there. Bye-bye. The Things That Made Me Queer is a World of Wonder production. Our theme song is Something Like Summer by Caveboy.